When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Greetings and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike Trott is coffee. At Starbucks with a double latte, skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. (laughs) Welcome into another exciting edition of Starkville. We are slamming the opening weekend edition right at you. And that's exciting because I got to do Red Sox, Yankees, and we had a whole lot of fun. So we'll talk more about that. We also will have Eduardo Perez to join us. Good friend, colleague for a long time at ESPN. Played against him, played against him in Puerto Rico. You know, just everywhere I've seen Eduardo Perez. I, the guy's everywhere. And it's, uh, it's fun to hear his perspective on baseball, life, sport, international play. He's, he's got a world of, of wealth and knowledge and very excited to have him on. Uh, Jason Stark will not be with us this week. He has the week off. So you're going to have to listen to me the whole time. Hope that's okay with you. I'll try to take care of Starkville and preserve it as best I can. I will put another, every week I'm going to just put a statue up of Jason Stark. I think that's the way to handle that. So uh, he's an icon. So it was opening weekend. And I mean, I don't know. I felt surprising surprisingly different than I expected because it had been so long that I was on the field with all my colleagues in that fanfare that is opening weekend. It just had been a long time. We've been all dealing with the pandemic. We've done a lot of games from remote and far away. So it's not the same, you know, just that feeling of camaraderie that you get when you're just with colleagues. And in some ways, when you work in the media, especially with a team for a long time, they become teammates. It's sort of like any sports team, you see them, you know what they bring to the table, you engage, you learn a lot from them, you exchange, you just have uh, all these shared experiences and you have them around something you all love. That is baseball. You have it in, in playoff times. You have an opening day with the refresh of the season. You have all these experiences that you not only have in the moment, but you remember from, from all the history. And I've been at ESPN you know, you know, more than double digit years now. And to see someone who is a colleague like Eduardo Perez, who I've been friends with for so long, it, it sort of brings back a lot of memories. So for me, doing Red Sox and Yankees, uh, that was exciting. First of all, it's very exciting that I'm able to be the ESPN baseball analyst for Sunday Night Radio. So that's a blast. And so I do that with John Chambi. But also when we're covering these games, Sunday Night Baseball on television, that side of the coin is there as well. So you see Carl Ravitch, you see David Cohn, you see, you see a whole team of people. But beyond that, it's, it's the teams. And we've had 
so many years working with Alex Cora, Aaron Boone, and now they go toe-to-toe against each other as friends, colleagues, and rivalry. So that rivalry, I knew a lot about early in life because I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. I did, the, I did Google Maps from the stadium. It's 5.7 miles from Yankee Stadium. So that, that was pretty shocking, but it's less than six miles from where I grew up, even though I grew up in New Jersey. And so I remember some of the early days of going to baseball games, and Yankee Stadium was one of those destinations. It was Shea, and it was Yankee. And I remember seeing Harold Baines when he was the White Sox and the Tigers. I, I, I want to say I might have seen a game of the White Sox with the shorts on. I, I that vaguely remember. It's kind of wild. But those were, those were good memories. Now, the Yankees weren't as dominant when I became older, you know, early late seventies, they were great, but then they had kind of the slow years, Dave Winfield years. And, and so I remember them as well. Now the Mets came to power, so to speak in 86, but there was no question that the Yankees still had that Steinbrenner effect of being iconic and in the media and always talked about. Now my town of Teaneck, Dave Winfield lived there. Willie Randolph, there's so many players, Elston Howard. There's a lot of great Yankees that lived in this sort of bedroom community of Teaneck. So we got to know them. My brother is older. who played with Lamont Randolph. I played with Lamont Randolph, actually, Willie's brother. So there's a lot of history there. But that rivalry often set the tone for just a competitive spirit around the game. It's one thing to try to beat your brother, and you have pride in doing that with love. But the other thing is just to know what – competition is about when you see two rivals go at it. And the Yankees and the, and the Red Sox were always that. Now, my brother and I played wiffle ball all the time, all the time. And he's seven years older, seven and a half, really. And he would, we would always imitate these players. We'd have the little skull cap things with the plastic on that had the logos, the official helmets out of plastic. And we'd change helmets and then imitate the entire lineup of whatever team, Montreal Expo, Twins, didn't matter. And of course, the Red Sox were fun and the Yankees because one of my our neighbors had Dennis Eckersley's sidearm delivery down pat. I mean, this guy had the wiffle ball thing, slider, the, the arm motion that he did, the basically sidearm delivery. And all those great hitters that they had, Jim Rice, Dwight Evans, and so on, Fred Linz of the world. So I remember this playing out not only in the real game, whether it's Bucky Dent and Mike Torres and that group, but also just how we created that world for us in our own driveway. And that often, often spilled into Stratomatic baseball for those Strat fans where we had our dice games in the basement playing Stratomatic and waiting for that package of Strat cards to arrive in January. So baseball was in some ways 365 days a year. And growing up in that era, you knew about Red Sox-Yankees. You just knew about that rivalry. And you know, I realized that as a player – the rivalry, you gain a different appreciation because it really is a reflection. It's a mirror because you appreciate that rivalry. Yeah, you want to beat them. Yeah, you have certain animosity, all these different things. But in the end, they're the test that you want. They're the measure of where you stand. It shows a lot about what you care about, what you're willing to fight for, how far you're going to go, how far you're going to work. And the Yankees, Red Sox have had that. And when I was with the Cubs, we had the Cardinals, but Yankees, Red Sox just had uh, first of all, the championships the Yankees riled off. There was a tremendous history there. And so I appreciated in a different way being able to call the game, being on the field. And this year, I vowed to take more pictures than ever because I'm terrible at documenting. I always hear about, oh, I need to do more, post more. So I'm trying to do a better job. And it turned out to be really wonderful. Outside of the 30 minutes it took to get all the ESPN people together, that's another story. 
Uh, I got him. I got him one shot. But also just seeing guys like Will Venable, who I knew uh, in, you know, from way back in the day as a player. I wrote an open letter to him one time in the New York Times. I, I saw, of course, Alex Cora and Aaron Boone. But there was a lot of memories. Heim Bloom is someone who's the head of baseball ops with the Red Sox. Saw him and talked to him. I interviewed for the Rays job when he was there. So it is about old faces, old places. And opening day was was really special this year because it's people we hadn't really seen in a while. And just to see the fans come out 40,000 plus strong in the cold to support uh, what they love, the energy was there. So that was something that I take with me because for so long we were doing it behind the screen in Zoom. Uh, but, you know, times move and Alex Cora has a gray beard now, Pelo Gris. So we realized that, you know, it's not sitting still for us, it's not standing still. But something about baseball connects those dots and you kind of bring back your childhood with you. Uh, so opening weekend delivered. And it was a great series, by the way, Red Sox-Yankees, as were many. And you see so many teams with new looks, the Phillies, uh, my old stomping grounds. By the way, I, I saw something on social media where some of the new Phillies never heard of Broad Street, you know, where uh, uh, the Phillies play. <laughs> so that was interesting. So I was, of course, offended as a Philly fan, but we'll, we'll, we'll let that go. But also it's just the new storylines, whether it's the universal DH and Nelson Cruz doing it again, hitting number 450, uh, whether it's the Rays who everybody, you know, I know everybody struggles with picking them to win the division every year even though they probably deserve it. But they're, they're a team that every year they just have to prove themselves no matter what. And I feel like it's, it's weird. Like if you pick the team, if you pick the Rays and they win, you feel smart and you feel right. It just makes sense. You're like, of course they won because this is what they do. But if you pick against them and then they win, then you feel like they like reinvented the wheel. I mean, that's something about the Rays. There's like no in between with them. And it's probably good that you bet against them. I think they like that. So let them like prove you wrong. Everybody's on the Blue Jays bandwagon, which I get. I'm on the bandwagon as well. Uh, Charlie Montoya, their manager, we had him on Starkville last year. And he was a teammate of mine in Puerto Rico. You know, great guy, great eye at the plate, great coach, great manager. So I think it could be his, his year this year, but we'll see. And AL East, it is a serious place. So... But so I'm really thankful that we're here. We're here again in Starkville celebrating a new season. And the opening week just delivered. Uh, Seiya Suzuki got to meet him in spring training. The Cubs, amazingly talented Japanese player who was dominant since he first arrived in the league as a teenager in Japan and already has his home run, great discipline at the plate, good defender, strong arm. I mean, you're going to love this guy. I got to talk to him through his translator in spring training and um, just, you know, gracious and wants to learn. So I see these stories just continuing. And when you have such a great youth movement of players and talent, you have a lot to offer. And I think the game is always known to skew to older audiences, but I see a lot of opportunities now for that younger generation to go back to times when we loved it. Just like we learned from Theo Epstein last week, who was, you know, thinking about, you know, what are we trying to do to make this game exciting again what are we what are we intentionally trying to work on to make sure this game sustains and lasts and some of that it just has to go to the drawing board on certain things um you just don't know so i i'm excited i know everybody's excited out there so and what else is bringing me joy and excitement is to have eduardo perez join us 
uh, someone who I have great respect for. He is a mentor, actually, when I first got to ESPN in 2009. And he helped out a lot just to get me uh, adjusted to life in the media. So uh, we'll, we'll hear from him, and I think we'll learn quite a bit. Eduardo Perez is joining us now, and we just went through opening weekend, uh, 2022, after pandemic, half seasons, all kinds of stuff going on. So I just want to get your overall take about the experience. We were both in, in New York covering the Red Sox, Yankees, and it kicked off a really great first weekend of Major League Baseball. So what, what's your take on that? My take is baseball is healthy. The, the players are still uber-talented. The fans crave baseball. We saw it with the stands. Not only did we see it in in New York, but, you know, I was opening day as well in Atlanta. And I saw it there as well and witnessed it with the Reds. Uh, You know, you look in social media and the fans are engaged. And that's what it's, I think that's the most important thing, that the players with three weeks of spring training, at least from the offensive standpoint, they look like they're on point. Um, and, and it's exciting to see, it's exciting to see the stands full again. It's exciting to see the broadcasters back in stadiums. I hadn't been in the stadium since, you know, 2019 in April, I mean, we didn't have baseball in 2020 in April, you look at it that way. And then we were confined to our homes doing games. So to be able to be out there on the field during batting practice, to be able to shake hands, hug, uh, a player and to be able to smell the grass, I think is, is, is is unique. It's a unique experience on my aspect, but, but Doug, man, it's the game, the game's as pure as it's ever been. And to be able to have young players, young talented players in the big leagues when they belong in the big leagues, because of the agreement that was made uh, during the CBA, people are, will, are, are, are witnessing, you know, the early on what Bobby Witt Jr. can do. Um, they're witnessing early on what, um, what young relievers and young starting pitching that most likely wouldn't have been in the big leagues and are in the big leagues now are, 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 are playing a major part in the role of the success of, of some teams, including if it's the Cincinnati Reds who, who went out there and, 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 and are going out with a young pitching staff and they're saying, okay, let's give you guys a chance. Yeah, so what, what do you think that does to preparation? Like how you prepared and recognizing what was missing with our inability to be there for, for so long with, with the pandemic. What, what have you kind of found revitalized by being able to talk to people beyond the field directly? Um, you get to find out about the personalities. I get to find out the, the, the personal stories. If it's uh, from Jose Trevino, catcher for the New York Yankees, on why it's not, you know, why he doesn't have a till day on the end. You know, and but it's still pronounced Trevino. Yeah, and well, not now Trevino. Why, why is that, by the way? <laughs> I knew you were going there. I, I love that part. Well, it's actually, it, it's actually, I thought it was a really cool story because his dad is like, no, it's Trevino with a tilde. And then mom, who inherited the Trevino name, was like, you know what? If they want to call you Trevino, Trevino, it really doesn't matter if you want to use a tilde or not. But for dad, it's important, you know? Uh, so, he follows mom's rule because let's face it, moms are, are who the, the last word goes to mom, even though dads might disagree. But when he went to Oral Roberts University, he actually 
realized that not a lot of people in his team and in the school could pronounce the tilde, the enye, the trevino. So they would butcher it up and say trevino. And after a while, he just gave up on it. And it's just like, okay, trevino. And that's how little by little we end up anglicizing our names. It just happens that way. If you look at Matt Diaz, for example, it's spelled Diaz, right? But it's pronounced Diaz and it's because his father who was a Spaniard, his grandfather who was a Spaniard when he went to Florida, um, he wanted to anglicize it. So they were calling him Diaz and it just stuck. And he's like, okay, just call me Diaz and we'll continue with that. Well, it's like Avila, right? Avila, Avila, right? His dad pronounces it Avila Avila. and his son pronounces it Avila. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting, like, you know, when you talk about these type of cultural sensitivities and, and just language, first of all, you know, having the capability to pronounce certain words that you don't know and, and accents, mm-hmm. I, I probably wouldn't be very good at like, you know, Chinese or something because you're just missing certain accents at a certain point. But I remember going to Puerto Rico for, you know, which you know was heaven for me for two years. And uh, and I, I, I thought it was cool. They called me Dogales Glanvilla. That was my name in Puerto Rico, Dogales Glanvilla. And I was like, cool. That was cool. <laughs> I loved it. I mean, remember there was wow. Quint, there was Quinton McCracken, and he said Quinton McCracken. Quinton. Quinton. <laughs> Quinton. Quinton because the Q U Q U E K Q U E K Quinton. Yeah. So and was, you're and you have a double L. Right? You have a double L. That's a different letter. <laughs> Those two letters are considered one letter in our alphabet in Spanish. So of course you're going to be Lambilla. <laughs> Of course. I mean, why wouldn't you be? Right. Exactly. Well, you look at my name. Yes. In Spanish, Eduardo Perez. In English, Eduardo Perez. Yeah. So I'm calling you Perez. I, I you know, John Chambi is John Chambi is responsible for hammering us on this. I'm like Perez. All right, we got it. There's no accent in there. So yeah. So no, that, that's fascinating. Um, so yeah. So you were, you were talking about the the preparation and having that kind of access to get this, you know, just kind of information. Um, and so, yeah, so what else have you found just now that you're there? You know, I had this conversation over the weekend just about how, you know, when you're in the studio all the time or you're behind a screen all the time, you do lose a certain sensitivity about what, whether how hard it is or just being on the field or the pulse. And, and sometimes it works the other way. If you're only on the field, only in the events, only with the players, it's a little harder to be like, technically critical right on certain things even if it's not like a negative criticism but just so i i always liked the balance and that was so disrupted from just being away from the field right so now instead of it just being two different viewpoints it's actually almost like a tripod and because now you get the third viewpoint of you're stuck at home right and there is no studio your studio is your home there are no players because they don't come to your home and play. And you have to find a way to just be better, find what you can do and how can you broadcast the game and still educate the fan, right? From your perspective, we might know the game. We might know the players. We might not know what they're going through when we're at home, but we still do know the players, but where are we getting our information from? Who are we leaning on to be able to get that information from? And then when should we give that information out? Because I think that's what's really interesting also is just because, and and again, I had the Trevino nugget in my back pocket, but we never went there yesterday, for example, in the game with the Red Sox and Yankees. But it's still in the back pocket to be able to go there for our audience 
when we do a game, maybe I believe it's a May 22nd White Sox Yankees, or maybe it's a Red Sox Yankees game again, or a Mets Yankees if he's catching, that could come up as a story. So you have that nugget, you educate yourself a little bit more. Um, just like we had Trevor Story, uh, we had a lot of information on him that we were going to give out. And guess what? He wasn't in the lineup. So we'll wait and we'll continue to have that yet in the back pocket. But I think the pandemic for the two years made me better. It made me better because I had a continuing education on it that no one else had in a moment that we were locked up at home. I was able to call Korean baseball organization games, the KBO. And I did not know the players. I could have conversations with the players, but I learned how to be able to talk to the media in, in, in Korea and find out more about the players that we were able to talk to the former players that played there and they could educate us more about the game. And then we also could explain the game from the TV point aspect of it because we were at home, we weren't there. So it's, it's and, and what could we do with what we had and we had to get creative. And I think that helped our communication. And then when we started doing Major League Baseball games from home, it was a lot easier because we already had a foundation with these players and the league. Well, you know, as a person, I love writing. So the pandemic, quite frankly, was fantastic for me in that standpoint. Not obviously talking about the health and the crisis side of it and the tragedies of it, but the aspect of professionally. Because I got to just write. You know, I didn't. I wasn't on planes and I wasn't connecting and luggage lost and whatever. I was just in my space sort of writing and getting perspective. Now, one thing you bring is so many different perspectives. Uh, your ability to adapt to different environments and to tap certain types of information and synthesize them. That You're like one of the best out there, man. And, and I can speak directly because when we were at ESPN early on, you were the one showing me the server that they had and, you know, getting information off of it and pulling, finding video and watching games and all these things. So you've always been on top of that and really quite frankly ahead of it. So I'm curious about the fact that you also had these experiences as a coach, you know, a son of a great player, a player himself and a media. How do you bring all those elements together and, you know, have that sensitivity from coach, player, media, son, all these things that you bring? Yeah, I'm blessed in that aspect, and I understand that also. Um, but that doesn't mean I, I, I should stop working at it and finding out a way of making sure that that one isn't prepared. I've always believed in being prepared. I've always believed in not taking shortcuts, and I've always believed in, you know, if it's there, let's, let's, let's find out a little bit more about that. And I think, you know, that goes to the moment that we were in, you know, we were in Bristol and, okay, let's look at the highlights. Let's go into the server before those highlights come in. They're there. Um, I wanted to know exactly what the production assistants were doing. I wanted to know how they accessed that information just in case if they weren't around, I wanted to be able to do it. I didn't want to be dependent on anyone. And I think that has always been my MO, who I am as far as curiosity and as far as being able to communicate things well. When I played in Japan, I found out a lot about myself because I was frustrated that I finally was in a place where I was a complete minority when it came to communications. Usually I knew the Spanish, I knew the English, and I could always be a bridge to that. I wasn't a bridge in Japan. And when I was there, I depended so much on Hiro and, and, and Aki, who were my interpreters, and we're still friends to this day. And I would tell them, teach me. And they're like, well, if we teach you, you won't need us. 
but yeah. I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn how to read katakana. I wanted to learn how to do the, base, the basic things. So when my wife and I went out to dinner, it would just be us two. It wouldn't be us two and Aki or us two and Hiro. So we, we um, and I found that, you know, the, that's who I am. And it's, I've applied it to my work as well. And I've applied it to, to getting to understand how to do things more efficiently and being able to bring that to an audience, at least in our line of work, I think it's gratifying. Well, take me back to your sort of the family history. Like, take me to where the dots are connected. You talk about work ethic, where this came from, you know, your human history, Puerto Rico. And uh, how do those synthesize with who you are and and how you approach your, your work? Okay, so first thing people have to understand about the Perez family is that I believe, and this is my personal thought, it's probably not my brother's, probably not whomever's, but I understand how much baseball is important to our family. I understand that with the political regime that was going on in the 60s with Fidel Castro and everything, that my mom ended up having um, to move from, from Cuba eventually to Puerto Rico. And they were a well-off family. My grandfather, who was on the other part of the political aspect, had to get out of there and had to leave with no money at all and start anew in Puerto Rico. Uh, My father signed professionally with the Cincinnati Reds for a $2.50 visa. And when he went to the United States to play, my grandfather, who I never got to meet, um, he died in the late 70s. He was the one that told my father, he's like, look, you're going to have to stay there after ha- him having gone for a couple years back after went after uh, minor leagues. You're going to have to stay there because the political situation here is not good at all. And then when he was going to play winter ball in Venezuela because of visa issues, they said, we don't want you to leave a U.S. territory. So it's better that you go to play in Puerto Rico winter ball and to continue to develop. And when he went to Puerto Rico, in October for winter ball, that's when he met my mom there because Jose Martinez, who was a teammate of his, ended up um, knowing my grandfather from his hometown and said, I want you to meet a friend. Next thing you know, five months later, my parents are married. That's how quick it happened. He said, I'm not leaving Puerto Rico without you. And he asked my grandfather for his, for, for the blessing. Uh, They did. And, you know, they've been married since. Uh, But the most interesting thing is the hard work, the perseverance. These are two immigrants um, that had to be lost their home in, um, in Cuba. Uh, they met in a beautiful island of Puerto Rico where I was raised. I was born in Cincinnati, but a month later I was raised in Puerto Rico. And I feel, I feel that I'm blessed with all three flags because uh, my Cuban blood with my Puerto Rican upbringing in the island, understanding how much it is really important to me. And then I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. So I feel that I'm blessed with all three flags, but I feel that I'm blessed also with what baseball has been able to provide for us. And, you know, growing up since we were a kid in the seventies, we had one rule and Sparky Anderson would bring us into the clubhouse. He at the time was the Reds manager He would bring us into the clubhouse to the kids, into his office and say, kids, these are the rules. Once the game ends, if the team wins, you're allowed in the clubhouse before the media is. 
And if the team loses, you're not allowed in the clubhouse at all. So we're talking about kids that were Ed Sprague Jr. We're talking about Hal McRae, uh, son Brian McRae, uh, and Craig McRae. We're talking about my brother Victor and myself. We're talking about Ken Griffey Jr. and his brother Craig. Uh, Craig. We're talking about Pete Rose Jr. So many, uh, Tommy Helms, Tuck, uh, his son, Tuck Helms. So many kids that played there, Lee May Jr., we had five kids that won in the first round, drafted in the first round. We had 12 of those kids signed professionally uh, to play some, uh, some kind of pro ball, um, including David Concepcion's son. We grew up around the stadium. We grew up understanding what the game was about. We understood it was about winning as a team. And I think that helped us out a lot. And the team aspect of it is what I love the most. I'm stronger with a, with a partner that's just as strong. And I've taken that not only to baseball, but I've taken it always even in other sports that I did. And then I've taken it into the job that I'm doing right now where I believe and I believe that, look, I'm going to be better if I have a partner that's just as prepared as I am doing a show or doing an event or working at something to be able to accomplish it as a whole. And what did you do to navigate that next step, as you mentioned, drafted in the first round. We were drafted the same year, like five picks apart. Yeah, you got me beat on that one. <laughs> the Angel, Cubs and Angels, right? So, um, but how did you sort of deal with the pressure? I mean, there's there's also a pressure aspect of now you're working your way to becoming a major leaguer and, and that aspect of baseball being your family. Now you're uplifting so much more than just the game. How did yeah. you sort of balance that or, or deal with that? Well, I was raw. I mean, I don't know how much baseball you played in high school and how much baseball you played. I played Little League, but then during the summers, I would actually spend them with my dad. I'd go and leave, the, you know, I'd spend them there. And I, we really didn't play much baseball. I played basketball in school. We didn't have a baseball field in high school or anything. Um, we would practice, our baseball team would practice in the gym in Puerto Rico. We would have wiffle balls that we would hit. Um, we would fire, get in a van and look for an open field and practice maybe in uh, shorts and a polo, and a polo shirt. Um, people think, you know, I played baseball all the time. I, yeah, I grew up around the game. I grew up in major league stadiums. That was my, that was actually my backyard. Uh, but to, to say that I did travel teams to say that I was playing in different leagues, um, it was not. And I was fortunate that Luis, um, that there was this kid named Jesvara Acevedo one year basketball practice got canceled. And my parents were in the, in the States and I was in Puerto Rico and I was, I was like, okay, what am I going to, let me go to the batting cages. I put a couple tokens in there and this kid says, what team do you play for? And this was my senior year in high school, senior year in high school. And I said, I don't, um, I don't play for a team. And he goes, what do you mean you don't play for a team? He goes, why don't you come play for us? And I said, where do you guys play? I had no idea. I said, okay, when do you guys practice? Because it was important that I couldn't miss basketball practice. So we practice on Thursdays at 7 p.m. I said, I can do Thursdays because my basketball practice ends at 6. It'll take me an hour to get there. I'll figure it out. Pulled out the map and everything, figured it out. And we play games on Saturdays. I didn't have any basketball games on Saturday. So I said, I can do that as well. Um, and ended up going to the practice, ended up being the center fielder for that team, did really well in one game. And all of a sudden, the scout by the name was Luis Rosas, who had, his first signing was Ozzie Guillen. Mm -hmm. After that, 
He was with the Texas Rangers and from the Texas Rangers, uh, he was with San Diego Padres and from the Padres, he went to the Rangers. Um, and just think about all the Puerto Rican players that went to the Padres. You're looking at Carlos Baerga, Benito Santiago, the Alomars. You got, I can go on and on. And then he went to the Texas Rangers. Texas Rangers. We're looking at Juan Gonzalez, Ruben Sierra, Pudge Rodriguez, who was a teammate of mine in the American Legion team. I mean, he's the reason why I moved out to the outfield again when they moved me to third base. He threw a ball that I was like, wait a second, I can't catch this thing. I got to go back to the outfield. So I, I, I could use profanity on it and tell you exactly what I said, but I'm not going to, even though maybe I could, but I'm not going to go there. But it pretty much, the first time I ever had an injury, it was on my thumb. I thought it was going to be a short hop throw when a kid was trying to steal third. Went to go get it. I said, short hop, and it went straight into my thumb area, and I thought it broke it. I said, I'm going back to the outfield. Um, and Luis Rosas took me to that team because he said, if you if you play for me, I'll try, I'll get you, I'll get you signed. And I said, I can't sign, but I would love to go to college. That's what my dad wants me to do. And um, my brother went to UPenn where you went. And I was like, look, my parents are always saying how much we have to pay for UPenn. I, I, I just want a place where at least I don't have to have my parents pay for it. So they're not complaining that I'm not getting straight A's, right? Figure out a way. And, and, um, and long story long, basically, he called Florida State. Florida State called me and Rod Delmonico, who I still stay in touch with, tried to speak Spanish to me on the phone because he had no idea that I spoke English. And when he found out that I did speak English, he goes, have you taken the SAT? And I said, I'm actually going to take it again on Saturday. And he said, well, what did you get the first time? He goes, all you need is to get over 700. And I was like, really? You get 600 for signing your name. What are you talking about? So, uh, so long, again, long story long, he, I went and took a visit to Florida State, and that was the only place that recruited me. And I ended up signing with the Seminoles. And three years later, I ended up getting drafted in the first round, five picks behind you. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, you know, I think back to, you know, we've had a lot of a long journey and a great journey at ESPN and, and other places. I'm curious about the trip to Cuba. You know, we had a chance to go to Cuba, call a game, <clears throat> meet the president of the United States and President Obama. What, what did that mean to you? That was really cool. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. That was awesome. That's actually you right there. I'm showing you somewhere. Yeah. In there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the um, light's yeah. actually zooming I'm, in on you, but you're there. I'm the photo bomber there. right there. Yeah, you're the photo bomber. <laughs> we got you. you got me. I got you. Right. Um, it's yeah. That was that was really cool, Doug. Um, and and you know you experienced it. I don't think I don't think words do it any justice to be able to. You know, I, I remember them asking us, "What are we going to ask the president?" And I had no idea what I was going to ask the president at the time. I remember you wanted to um, 
I, I remember you were very, uh, you had so much conviction in, in what you were going to ask um, when it came to um, Rachel Robinson having been there and everything. And, and I thought it was, a, I thought it was a great, um, you know, a topic to talk about. And all I knew is that I was going to meet up with my cousins. That's all I knew. I was going to meet up with my cousins and, and they live in Cuba um, from my dad's side. And they were going to be there for the weekend while I was there and while we were there. And I needed to ask them first before I could ask the leader of the free world. Um, look, it was 1928 when Calvin Coolidge, the last sitting president, ever set foot in Cuba. And you and I and Carl Ravitch, and uh, we were there. We were the only ones that were going to be able to interview the leader of the free world in an island that is not free. He did a press conference. He did a, he did a, a speech in Cuba, but no one ever asked him any questions. It was Carl, the first one to ask him a question. And I thought we had a unique moment with the first African-American president. And again, the second president to set foot in Cuba since 1928. And the first one, better said, since 1928. Jimmy Carter had visited Cuba, but he already had been president and he was not an acting president. Man, I mean, that was, that was a moment. That's a moment I won't forget because you listen, I listen to all the stories from my grandfather telling me how great that stadium was when he was young and he used to go watch games there. And to all of a sudden, we were sitting there and before the president got there, there was a jersey with Obama on it right to our left. And I'm like taking pictures of it. And I remember them telling us, no selfies. <laughs> you know me. <laughs> Selfie I'm going to do. Uh, so as soon as they told me no selfies, I was like, all right, I want to see how you're going to get me to uh, not take a selfie here. So I, I, I'm glad that you were in it because I thought it was important. I'm uh, ecstatic of it. I tell the story wherever I can. I explain it. Um, I pinch myself for it. And uh, I think I think you as well should, because I, you know, I was so proud of us to be able to do that. And I'll tell you what, I did get some, some, you know, some messages from Cuban people that were upset that we were there. Right. Sure. And I was like, we want to do a job, but at the same time, I felt it was necessary. And then my cousin's question was, what difference is his visit, the president's visit, going to make, not to them, but to their kids and their grandkids? Because this, that was his last year in office. Somebody else was coming in. We didn't know at the time who was coming in, but we needed, we needed to make a difference. Yeah, I mean, that, that experience was transformational. And I think part of it, I mean, just waiting to go on the flight and all the people that were sort of the delegates, right, of this of baseball from every network. And we were all so in awe that we just became this immediate family. Like it, it just melted away so many things that may have divided us or had different points of view. It was just like, all right, we're all here and we recognize the magnitude of the moment. And I just remember the president coming in. For, you know, first of all, you know, there was a 
incident in Brussels, right? It was, a, it was a bombing or something happened. And for a split second, we were like, he might not come or he might not stay because they had to address it. And we weren't sure. So that morning, you know, Secret Service, everybody's kind of going around. And so kind of got the green light that he was coming. And I remember being in the booth and the silence. Like, it was one thing, you know, he came in, they introduced, and it, it was silent. I have a video of this. <laughs> like, like three minutes of just like, and we were on air and we just stopped talking. We just stopped talking. Um, it was it was something. And, and it, the context of that, while there was – there was like dudes with rifles on the roofs and stuff. I mean, this was no joke. I mean, and uh, I remember they, you know, in conversation, they had built a, a hospital uh, by the airport and stuff. I mean, it, it, this was serious. So, and at one point, just coming back from, you know, I went to dinner or something and I got stuck with the taxi. I got stuck in the, the presidential motorcade <laughs> and actually tried to film something and, it went on for like minutes. I mean, there was 30 cars in this thing. So, I mean, it, so it was, it was quite a collision of, of so many different moments, but I think the, the disarming feeling of like, wow, this is so much bigger. You know, you always feel like baseball is bigger than life in certain ways, but this was something else. Cause it was some form, it was a diplomacy and, and we felt like we represented something so different than our own personal stories. So, I mean, I, you know, and I, and the, and you mentioned the question, well, I asked about Rachel Robinson, Rachel Robinson and Sharon Robinson, daughter of Jackie and wife of Jackie flew in, were flown in with President Obama on Air Force One. And I wanted to know why, like, why was that important to him to, to bring them to Cuba? And for historians out there, 1947, when Jackie Robinson broke into Major League Baseball, the Dodgers had spring training in Havana, Cuba. That's where they had spring training. And, and there was a lot of reasons for that, one of which was Florida was really nasty uh, on, on, with race. And, and so he, they kind of thought that would be a change of scenery. I think the Reds at some point, then they uh, go down there at some point. So, so, so there was you know, some precedent, some uh, way that they – and set precedent. So I remember learning about that story. Now, Robinson, the thing that was interesting about the Dodgers – is they still segregated the team when they were in Cuba because of you know the internal history and challenge. So Robinson, I think it was Don Newcomb and Junior Gilliam, they stayed out in like some crazy hotel 20 miles away. And, and Duke, Newcomb was not happy about it. They weren't happy, but Robinson sort of stiff upper lipped it and went in. So I had the so one morning when we were getting ready to do Sports Center all day, it was sort of, I think it was a day before, I get a message from Fernando Lopez. He says, Hey. Rachel Robinson is available and she doesn't do a lot of one-on-ones. You just need to get ready now. You're not doing any of this, but you're interviewing Rachel Robinson in Cuba right now. And I was like, I like had a heart attack. <laughs> it was like, I had no questions. I, you know, so here's Rachel Robinson and I, I, and nobody has a phone, right? We have these burner phones and we're trying to find them. And, and Rachel's family, like they didn't have a phone. We had to track down someone on MLB who was with them and all that. And finally, we're just waiting in the on the floor where she's staying. And finally, Sharon just comes out of the elevator. We're like, oh, wow, Sharon. So it's like, oh, okay. She wants to get a haircut. And there actually is a hair salon in the basement of this hotel. So you got to wait for her haircut. <laughs> I said, well, can we? Yeah, she was getting a haircut. She was going to the salon in Cuba for this interview. And she wanted to be, look look right. So I go down, you know, so now she walks me in there. and And Sharon says to me, look. You need to 
take her back to her room because I have this thing to do halfway through your interview and I can't stay. So you have to stay with my mom and then take her back to her room. So I do this interview out, right outside the hair salon and it's, it's, it has an outdoor concourse. So there's like plants and stuff. I do this one-on-one -on -one with Rachel Robinson and her question, you know, mind blowing. And then I have lunch with her for like an hour. And I just, I couldn't, my mind was exploding. Like I'm sitting with Rachel Robinson right now, one-on-one, -on -one, just talking about kids. And, and she was so gracious and so insightful and so sharp at, at like then, I don't know, 95 or something like that. And, uh, and I had this honor of just escorting her back to her room. And, and I was just like, you know, just unbelievable, this, this convergence, right. Of all these elements that, you know, were really emotional. So I, you know, every moment was kind of like that there and, and, uh, and, and the game, you know, just was almost the backstory, right. It wasn't really, a, it was, it was something else. That is, that's fascinating. I feel like I'm the one interviewing you now because that <laughs> right there was awesome. That right there is a great story. Yeah. I did not know that. I had yeah. no idea that I knew you had told me, he goes, I, I don't think you told me, wait till you hear about the day I had. Yeah. I had to wait eight years for this. <laughs> well, I know we had, we used like two questions in the game as, as footage, but I had way more than that. And, <laughs> um, and yeah, I just, I just shared stories and, you know, learned about the kids and everything. Um, so, but, so one thing, you know, we talk about unity. We talk a lot about the sport. But one thing I absolutely have to bring up is Puerto Rico, because as you know, I played in Puerto Rico in 94, 94, 95, 95, 96, two seasons down there. And I've said and numerous times and written many times that transformed my life, literally transformed my life. Uh, it was an experience because not only did it put me on the baseball professional map to be a major leaguer, but it became so validating for me as a person because you know my dad has caribbean roots in trinidad and i connected with people in the culture like you know it was just such a it was hand hand in glove really uh so i just wanted to ask you about you know you know growing up there as you've mentioned a little bit before but also transitioning to being a player playing in puerto rico and sort of what that meant for you and, and certainly the legacy because they had the dream team and as you mentioned all these great puerto rican players uh, many of which back then would come back and play well, for me, it's, it's actually, everybody thinks that's where I learned, you know, I learned to play baseball because of what happened in the big leagues and, and, you know, during the summers and the time I would spend, but I actually spent a lot of time in the off season at Iran Bithorn stadium in Bayamon. I would get on the buses um, because my dad played for Santurce for so many years. And he, you know, every year that he played in the big leagues, it was assumed that he was going to play winter ball. And that was part of making ends meet. So once the season would be over in, 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 in the States, if they went to the postseason or whatever it may be, my dad would probably just take a week off and then start playing again in Puerto Rico. And here we go again. We, let's go to the ballpark and let's, let's do this and let's do that. And, and, and we loved it. You know, that was, that was my childhood growing up. And I knew that if I ever signed professionally, and again, as a kid, I never viewed myself as a professional baseball player at all, but that it was going to be um, expected that I would have to play winter ball. And I was okay with that. I had no problems with that. My first year, I remember I, I, I got drafted and, and they said, you have to go to instructional league. 
that you're invited to go to instructional league where you know that means you have to go to instructional <laughs> right, league. Exactly. So I went to instructional league and once that was over, I joined the team in Bayamon because that's the team that had uh, drafted me. Uh, Los Criollos de Bayamon, they weren't playing in Caguas that year. And uh, Vaqueros Criollos, they called them. And as soon as I got there, they said, uh, we need a bullpen catcher. And I was like, what? We need a bullpen catcher? I don't, I don't catch. So I'm like, yeah, but you're a rook. Go catch. And it was Jeff Nelson. Yo, he was nasty. nasty and the lights weren't great. And I was like, I can't catch back there. And Vic Power, um, Victor Peyot, great first baseman of the day, one of the best uh, in the glove. He had a great glove. He signed with the Yankees and then went on um, and then got traded and, and made a living in Kansas City and all that. He, uh, he was a scout for the Angels. And he's like, he told me, he said, that's our first round pick. He's not going back there anymore. That's not happening. And all of a sudden, the next day, they decided to sign this young kid that was converting from second base in college where he was in junior college where he was playing to catching a kid by the name of, um, I don't know if you've heard of him or not, Jorge Posada. <laughs> right. uh, so he started catching Jeff Nelson, even though he caught him also in the big leagues. That's a different story. But anyway. Uh, you know, going back to what baseball means, it's not only the roots of the dream team in 95, it's from the strike ruling, uh, from the strike year. It's, it's what I feel I owe the game. And I still feel that way right now. And if I owe baseball, I'm in a really good spot because I love baseball. I love the people. I love the game. I love the strategy. I love what it, I love the smiles that it brings. I love the, sometimes the sadness that it brings because you're one so competitive. And that is what I would love to share with the Puerto Rican fans. Um, And that's why not only did I play there in winter ball, um, I managed there in winter ball for three years. I was able to win championships there two out of the three years for Ponce. And then I was, um, fortunately, I was able to also manage the Santurce team, which we owe a lot to, who we owe a lot to. So I was, you know, and, and we ended up winning there as well. But I've also been able to manage and represent Puerto Rico internationally. And um, to me, that was that was huge. Uh, but before managing internationally, I was able to play for the WBC for Team Puerto Rico and then coach um, uh, and be a hitting coach for Team Puerto Rico as well. So all those things... Um, have played um, such a big part in who I am because I'm married to a, uh, to a Puerto Rican who bleeds uh, it and breathes it every day. And both of my daughters were born in Puerto Rico. So um, I want them to understand how important that island is to all of us. Yeah, well, I, I think back to, so when I first arrived to Puerto Rico, I flew in the Mayaguez, and I think there was a there was a short flight from Aguadilla first. I Aguadilla, think, Aguadilla, and then the Mayaguez and the short flight. So I stayed in Cabo Rojo, which is kind of like you know off the off the Mayaguez. I don't know if you want to call it suburb or whatever, but really not a beach town, I guess. And uh, I remember the I stayed in the Don Carlos Cabanas, and he was a big Cangrejeros fan. That's Santurce. So every day I heard about it. If they beat us, Los Cangrejeros, hey, what's up? <laughs> he would just mock. So we did win the championship one year. So I finally got our, our revenge. But I, you know, I went back there not not long ago, like five years ago. 
And it was like picking up where I, I left off. It was the same. I ran into Juan Boki Lopez. I ran into a guy that used to drive with us, one of my teammates, Jose Torres, uh, at the mall. I, you know, it's just, <laughs> so it's like, it's crazy to think about like, you know, people have that enduring memory. And, and that was always, always magical to me. So I, you know, forever grateful. So, um, but I, I also think about like, You've seen, as you've established, you've seen the game from so many points of view. You, you, it's almost like you want the whole, you want a 360 degree experience of baseball. So you've managed and you've coached and you've done it internationally and in bilingual settings and you've done all so much and you've covered it. So I guess from that, what would you like to see the game do next? Where do you want to see the game go? There's so much discussion about rules changes and shifting defenses and uh, is there? Is, do you have any clarity on you know what the next rendition of baseball could look like or should look like? As far as we're talking, as far as rules in the game, about, yeah, about rules or or as you mentioned, like embracing the younger players, like I mean, what? But yeah, I think the let's yeah. start let's start with the rules because that's always so present. You have shifts, you have pitch clocks, you have all this uh, information. I think there's going to be someone on some team that's going to figure out a way to, to, to work around that shift rule. Um, especially when you have, let's say hitter, like maybe if it's Joey Gallo or, or a guy that's a, a, a dead pull hitter from the left side that, that, you know, most often or not is when he's going to pull the ball, he's going to hit it on the ground. And if he pulls it in the air, most likely it's going to go. So they're talking about with the shift uh, that, second baseman can no longer be on the grass or that the shortstop can only be on the shortstop, the left side of the field uh, from the, from the base on um, and not go to the other side. Well, that means that we won't see a four man outfield either. Right. Because that means if we can't have an infield on the grass, there's no more four man outfield, but there's nothing against pretty much pretty much having a true two-man outfield and having one of those versatile outfielders, let's say, for example, Kike Hernandez, who plays center field, but we know very well he can play any position in the infield. And you put him actually in short right, let's say. You bring him in and you put him in short right, where usually the second baseman is on a, on a, on a pull-hitting guy. Play the second baseman in normal depth, play the shortstop where he belongs, play the third baseman there and go with two outfields. I think teams will figure out a way. They'll, they'll, they'll always try to trick this. They'll try to gain an advantage, not trick the system, but gain an advantage. Um, I love the pitch comp. I'm all in on it. Yeah. Um, I think we, we've seen a, a, an article about MLB.com came out with uh, Nixon Zell's defense loving pitch com because everybody talks about how, how fluid the game is going with it, the people that use it. But I think where it's making a major impact on, and I had this conversation um, with uh, Coach Miranda is about is about how important it was for the middle infield and the outfield to understand how to get a jump on the pitches that are coming. And not only are they guessing now that it's going to be a changeup if you're in the outfield, uh, but where to position yourself as soon as that pitch is arriving, the jump, it keeps you, the word he used was engaged. And I think that's what um, the pitch comm is doing to the, uh, to the fielders. I'm wondering if, Teams are going to, because they get five each, right? They get five year pieces each. I'm wondering that go in the, in the hat. I'm wondering if what they're going to do now, if a pitcher doesn't like using it, maybe the catcher will go with the sign for the pitcher, 
but then he presses the button so the rest of the fielders understand what's coming. So now your defense is better. You're optimizing your defense. Another thing I would recommend, why not, is have the home plate umpire also use a pitch comp. Yeah, a universal one for right. them. That's interesting. That way they miss, they don't miss calls as much. Yeah. You know, they know fastball outside. Okay, now I know. You still have to keep the same position. I've talked to umpires. They said, we don't change our position because there's a fastball or slider. We go to wherever the catcher goes. So they, they track. And sometimes they even say, when a catcher tells them and they'll tap them on the shin, on the shin guard of the umpire and say, clear, give me some room here because I might throw behind the hitter to first base. Position players have always helped umpires get themselves in better position. Why not? If a hitter knows what's coming, that's not good. But when a catcher has to know what a pitch he's thrown is coming, why not also tell the umpire behind the plate? Yeah. Maybe that'll gain an advantage for them to make sure they don't miss pitches because the pitchers in today's game are really nasty. Yeah. No, that's a great idea. You know, oftentimes when we think of pitch com, you know, this communication system between you know, you think of it as pitcher and catcher, but there's three other devices at least out there uh, where other positions can can have that. And I'm you know I'm curious about uh, you know one day if we do get to the point of of more technology on balls and strikes, you know where that where that actually will continue to go. I mean, is that technology does it concern you at all? Uh, you know, you hear a lot of questions about human elements and things like that, but you know, any, you know, yeah. We as human are, are so, we're challenged when we, when we hear the word change, right? When we see something change, we always try to be, we're always just, our human nature is to be resistant against it because we're not feeling comfortable with it. Um, it could be with the color of the wall. I've, I've, I've debated, should I change the color of this wall that I have <laughs> behind me from blue to maybe, maybe, I don't know, brown. And would it really make a difference? And I haven't, I haven't changed it yet, but, and it's not laziness. And, and that's the, the thing is, I love the human element of things. I love being able to interact with a person at a cash register, me, instead of me having to do it in a grocery store and bagging it. And, and it, I feel that it's taking a job away. I feel that, you know, we're, and, and I get it if you're an owner and everything and all that, but with, with this week, if we can get, look, instant replay has been great for baseball. It's been great for the pressure of umpires. We've seen how much um, from the Denkinger call of way back then to the perfect game call in Detroit. We've seen all these moments that, yeah, if there was a replay system, it could work um, and it, it, it would have worked better. And now we've made it better. But as far as the home plate purity call of it, that's why I'm wondering if PitchCom could change that as well and actually raise the bar on each umpire even more. Yeah, yeah definitely could. Well, you know, it's interesting. We've had Theo Epstein on the show just talking about, you know, you know, you avoid the sentence of like of trying to fix the game, right? But more, you know, streamlining in ways, tempo and pace. And I noticed with PitchCom, you know, a lot of speed, you know, it was more rhythm. A lot like okay calls in if anything some of the hitters are trying to slow the pitchers down because they're getting the pitches so quickly and they're, they're as soon as they get off the mound or next ball they're already working on that next pitch so if anything the, the hitters are trying to get a tempo so that they're not rushed uh which had been you know all these other cases 
let me ask you this. Why? I just don't understand. If we have the pitch comp, why is it that the pitcher then, especially a veteran pitcher like Zach Greinke, why wouldn't he actually have the unit in his glove or something and just call his game? Because at the end of the day, you want to get rid of pitchers shaking off pitches. I have a veteran guy. I'll let Zach Greinke call his own game and let the catcher know with the earpiece what's coming. Well, maybe you switch him. Maybe you put the maybe you control. switch him. Yeah, it'll I mean, be interesting. Well, I had a player, and I'll, I'll, I won't name his name, although it won't matter at this point because we're long retired. But he couldn't see the ki- the catcher's fingers very well at all, really, and so the fingers became complete decoys. And he he would call the pitch with his mouth. He oh would, wow! He'd open his mouth for a change up and close it and, and do all these things. So you know, it's it's not unprecedented that pitchers you know, and then the catcher would shake him off and then you know adjust location. So. You know, there's a lot of ways it could go. And like you said, there's some veterans out there that have great command. I don't think you do that to Yadi Molina, though, <laughs> as Michael Waka would find out. But, yeah. yes, I think um, there's probably guys like that who could call their own game. I mean, imagine Greg Maddox would pitch calm. Like, what would that be like? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Mike Morgan and against Greg Maddox. The games used to last like an hour and 48 or 49 minutes. It would have been even even quicker. Yes. Well, Eddie, I mean, I could talk to you forever, man. I mean, I well, I appreciate you you coming you out it, here, bro. man, at the, into Starkville, and it's uh, it's been a little fun, little place. It's something Jason and I dreamed up many years ago, as we constantly used to go back and forth in the locker rooms in Philadelphia. And I read his column back when I was in college, so he, I was already a fan when I met him. So it was funny to when I finally did. I, I felt like the fan, so. Uh, still am. So it's been, uh, it's been a great journey just to tell these stories. So, but fascinating, man. I mean, your history is incredible and how you bring it all together through what we all love on this show is, um, you know, it's, it's actually a gift to the game because you, you are, you truly cherish different points of view and how people can come together around it. And it totally colors how you interpret the game in such a great way. I mean, it's really like Picasso, like, right, you bring in, I mean, you coached and you brought in all these experiences and it's a, it's a gift to give it to people that you actually can relate on so many levels. So I appreciate your work and I wish you well all Sunday. I'll see you all these Sundays. So, so that would be fun. Um, but keep it going, man. You got it, brother. And I'll see you on the Saturdays on field. I feel those as well also, because sometimes I'll just jump in there and go early, but yeah, uh, Doug, Let's enjoy the ride, man. You're, 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 you've come a long way and I've come a long way and we continue to, to grow. So we're growing together and that's the best part about this. No doubt, man. All right, man. Take care. All right. You got it. Appreciate you. So it's time for our favorite section where Jason and I typically look absolutely bananas here, but it's going to be me. So I'm going to have to wear all of this in representing our successes and our failures. I accept that though. And so listener trivia, we're welcoming in Michael Shane Powers, who is a professor at Angelo State. He's in West Texas. And uh, although a North Florida guy, he ended up understandably a big Atlanta Braves fan. And there's no better time to be a Braves fan riding the ring. They just had their ring ceremony. So I think I, I heard they like glow in the dark and you could see them from space apparently. they. They- <laughs> yes, they were very impressive, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, so, and uh, doc- Dr. Michael Shane Powers is sporting a bow tie, so Ken Rosenthal is very happy he will be. 
Excellent. So, so tell us about, so what do you teach at Angelo State? Yeah, I'm a uh, history professor, uh, specialized actually in 19th century U.S. history. Uh, so I managed to incorporate the history of baseball in a lot of my classes, um, particularly there, you know, after the Civil War when the game becomes professionalized and everything. So, All right. Um, so what's, what's, I, yeah, what, what's, what's been a favorite factoid of, of baseball after the Civil War? Uh, well, you'd be surprised. Still a lot of students, and I guess Americans as a whole, still think Abner Doubleday invented it. Yeah. So uh, dispelling that myth always uh, surprises a few students. But uh, I keep it honest, and I actually play on a historical baseball team here in my town oh. uh, that plays in the mid-19th century rules and the uniforms and everything. Oh, my so. goodness. So, so, <laughs> all right, so it wasn't Abner. Was it like his brother? He just stole the credit? It was like John Doubleday or something? <laughs> well, it's those knickerbockers out in New York that really kind of codify the game, and but uh, they look to give credit to somebody to make it a little more American-born. Yeah, I'm gonna. All right, well, I'm gonna line up now and and see if I can pull this off without a glove. Uh, so uh, I'll accept your question. We are talking listener trivia, and Dr. Michael Shane Powers, historian, has one for us. All right, Dougie. Only three starting pitchers have ever won six gold gloves and also been an all-star six times. Who are they? Wow. Okay. So now I'm going to be very confident in this first guess because you're an Atlanta Braves fan. I got to go Greg Maddox. Uh, now, you don't have to tell us until I answer all of them. So, But I'm going to throw Greg Maddox with confidence out there because, I mean, he was a vacuum cleaner. And I assume he won a lot of all-star appearances and bursts. So I'll go with that. After that, the confidence is pretty much gone. So, all right. So I'm going to just thrash around a bit. You know, I think of someone like Jim Cott, who had like a thousand gold gloves. I don't know if he made six all-star teams, but maybe by longevity, he pulled it off. I uh, think of, you know, great fielders from the 80s. Because I imagine if you win six gold gloves, you kind of dominated your whole generation. So it's probably hard someone in your same league to win at the six at the same time. So I'm thinking maybe it's the other league and then other decades. That's that's how I'm thinking about it. So I don't know. I, I keep thinking Steve Carlton. I don't know if he had one many, but he was really good. Picked off everybody. Good fielder. I think of Bob Gibson, who, you know, was pretty talented. Because the, the Gold Glove Award, you know, from doing the show, I think I recall this right. It was in the late 50s that it started. So I can eliminate, like, Frankie Frisch and those cats. <laughs> so um, I thought about... A guy like Mark Burley, I, you know, he feels like he could be a sleeper. Really good, you know, picked everybody off. Did the behind the back, through the legs thing. Um, I don't know about Fergie Jenkins or Dallas Keuchel. Um, I mean, I know I went crazy like Dennis Martinez, Dave Steve, Frank Viola, Brett Saberhagen, who picked me off before, and Jim Palmer. So I, I don't think, I don't know, but I'm throwing everything at the kitchen sink. So if I had to narrow it down, though, I'm definitely going Maddox. Maddox, I, you know, but Bob Gibson seemed like he might have won six gold gloves. Is a lot of gold gloves. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw Jim Cott out there. I don't know if he made that many All Star games, but maybe just by attrition and 24 year career, he might have snuck in six. And um, let me just go, man. Burley, Burley have six All Star. That's a lot of All Star games. But I'm gonna do it. I'm going to go Mark Burley. So that's my, that's where we go. I'm going Greg Maddox, Jim Cott, and Mark Burley. Any chance I'm even close? 
Doug, you got one of the three right. And in textbook, Starkful fashion, you talked about one of the right answers, uh, but didn't quite go with them. Okay, that's good. Uh, so Bob Gibson All right. is on there. So Greg Maddox, Bob Gibson, and the guy who started opening day this year, Zach Grinky. Oh, Grinky. Yes, yes. I did have him in my yes. head. Yeah, I probably could have gotten yeah. at least Grinky in there. Yeah, Zach is pretty wild. Really good. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's a great question because – um, well, first of all, I always appreciate when we talk defense, you know, that that's a, a you know, it's not, not given quite enough love, but, you know, at least we have defensive run saved. <clears throat> we have defensive run saved. We have other uh, metrics right now to that's right. Uh, pitchers don't hit anymore, but they still got a uh, field. That's right. Their position. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so that's good to see. And there's just more data now to at least show that they, they have an impact, you know, when they field their position well and, but uh, no, it's a great question. Really appreciate that. You know, just getting us thinking. I'll, I'll I'll check in with Jason to see what he was thinking on this question. But um, you know, we, you know, at least it's familiar names. I you know, always I, I maybe I feel better sometimes when it's someone from like 1809 or something before the league even Orville started. Overall, like yeah, yeah, we'll just that's fine. <laughs> we'll, whenever we have our trivia though, before we go, we uh, we want to put the extra nail down here with our producer to uh, let us know one of the storylines and one of the answers did something magical at one time. And our mayor, Tim McMaster, is going to reveal that to us. Yeah, Doug. And so just over the numbers for this, Zach Renke was six and six. So that's where the trivia question begins, I think, uh, for Michael. Bob Gibson, nine gold gloves, nine all-star games. And then Maddox is just off the charts. 18 gold gloves, which is the record, by the way, (laughs) of any position. Yeah, and eight all-star games for Maddox. So we're going to go with audio from Maddox. One defensive play doesn't, there's not like one thing he did in like game seven of a World Series that stands out. So I put together a little bit of an audio montage of great Greg Maddox defense. uh, And it finishes off, Doug, with an interesting player at the plate. Here you go. Pat Howell puts the ball. What a play by Maddox. Outstanding play by Greg Maddox. The 1-0 pitch to Omar Quintanilla, bouncer back to the 17-time Rawlings Gold Glove Award winner, and there are two away. And he spears that one. That's why he's won seven consecutive Gold Gloves. Well, he said if they can't catch it, I'll have to catch it myself. First three hitters have been hitting the ball very well. Maddox with another nice play. Took a base hit away from Glanville, one down. Took a base hit away from Glanville. <laughs> Yeah, that happened a lot, unfortunately. <laughs> well, if I may, to bring this back full circle, I actually live where Greg Maddox was born. Oh, he was born oh, in San okay. Angelo, I Texas. Think, I think oh, of him wow. as Las Vegas, but I guess he wasn't born in Las Vegas. No, yeah, born in San Angelo. Wow, that's a great question. Well, thanks for taking me on that that journey. Uh, yeah, Maddox, Maddox, you know, you can make contact against them, but you're pretty much out most of the time. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's always great to think about defense and. And uh, yeah, Gibson, all these greats, Zach Greinke, kind of a throwback and still pitching, which is quite amazing. So yeah, appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for letting me join you guys. Thank you. Strange but true. Well, every week we like to dive into our Strange But True, a feature that's made nationally and internationally popular through the legendary Jason Stark, my partner here. And, but this week, it was something that I pulled up. I just happened to be going through the box scores. Of course, Jason and I are always hunting for the wild and wacky. 
And then I saw the Cleveland Guardians. You know, they've debuted this new name and they have a whole new look on their team. Not sure how far they're going to go this this year, but they got some exciting players. So then I saw Stephen Kwan. Now, Stephen Kwan played at Oregon State and he was a legend in college in 2018. This guy had 50 walks and only 18 strikeouts on the season and managed also to hit 356, by the way. So he's known for kind of a ball-to-bat, bat-to-ball contact guy. A little bit of a throwback, not necessarily big power, but finds a way to always find the barrel and and sprays the ball all over the field. So there was that story of how well he played in college and the metrics of how well he gets on base, and we love on-base percentage. So he ends up being a fifth-round draft pick in 2018, and he proceeds to hit 337 in double-A, and it's 311 in AAA, and his slash line in AAA, when there was some questions about his power, he, he pulls off a 311, 398 on base, and a 505 slugging percentage. So he kind of put that to rest. And he also, when you combine the levels of AA and AAA, which were all in 2021, 36 walks, 31 strikeouts. And he does this over 341 at-bats and manages 12 home runs. So I don't think a lot of the Cleveland Fans were that surprised that a guy that's made contact his whole life and knows how to just hit. So he proceeds to go five for five and it started off the season eight for 10 with two doubles, scored four runs, coming off of a ridiculous spring training where he was 15 for 32 and scored seven runs. So of course, one little personal connection I have with Stephen Kwan is that I played at Wareham in the Cape and sure enough, he played there as well and you know, did a phenomenal job. So I can relate to how sometimes playing in the Cape is that breakthrough moment to get you started. And Stephen Kwan did more than just get the party started. He lit it on fire. I mean, he's doing exceptionally well and he's quickly become a fan favorite. I, I just followed him on Twitter, just so you know. So um, Stephen Kwan, thank you for being strange, but also true. Now, other strange features, this is something, well, you think about what Jason Stark, Stark had coined and he made up the term double hook, right? This idea of the DH and the pitcher, and then you, you take one out, then you lose the other kind of concept. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about the quick hook. And we know that we're not in the 80s anymore. We're not in the time of my favorite pitchers like Steve Carlton going nine, nine, 10 innings if he needs to, throwing 198 pitches. They didn't even count back then, probably. They maybe used an abacus, whatever. But now we're in a time where Pitch counts matter, and situational baseball reigns supreme. And when now, con- considering we broke camp with 28 players on the roster, given the shortened spring training, there's a lot of pitchers. I just did the Yankees-Red Sox series, as we discussed earlier, and they had 16 pitchers. The Yankees had 16 pitchers and 12 position players. So every other half inning, you could bring in anybody you want, pretty much. So this reality is also facing the fact that starters are not going deep in ball games. We know the complete game is virtually gone from us. Some teams didn't even have one last year. But we also know that when pitch counts get up there and the third time around starts to come into play, pitchers have a lot less success. So let me take you over to the San Diego Padres, Arizona Diamondbacks, back-to-back games on Thursday and Friday of opening day and the next day on Friday. 
And we had something that happened that never happened before, and it's sort of fitting to the era we're in right now. So we had two pitchers, two starters for the San Diego Padres, who you Darvish on Thursday went, and I quote from Jason Stark's notes and, of course, the box score, six innings, no hits, four walks, three strikeouts, and he threw 92 pitches, and he comes out of the ballgame. Okay, he's not a no-hitter. A lot of pitches, but he comes out. So he has a no-hitter. The Padres actually end up losing that game 4-2, to two, and the no-hitter is blown up by the next inning. But that's, that's it. Six innings of no-hit ball. The next day, Sean Manaya is pitching for the same San Diego Padres. And what does he do? He goes seven innings, no hits, <laughs> one walk, 88 pitches, and he gets hooked. And that's it. He comes out of the game. They end up losing that no-hitter. They did win that game. So you're wondering, Jason Stark-type thought process, has this ever happened before? Two hit pitchers, one team, back-to-back starts, both throwing no-hitters, both yanked out of the game, and one is actually a loss, and the no-hitters are blown up. And the answer is no. It's never happened before in the history of baseball, where you have these pitchers being that dominant, coming out of the game, and we know it's pitch count, we know it's matchup, it's early in the season, you don't want injuries, but that's where we are right now. So the no-hitter, although we had a whole bunch of them last year, and we were a little worried about breaking all kinds of records, uh, the truth is sometimes we're getting in our own way from the no-hitters because it's pretty hard to do that when you're actually on the bench and out of the game with a no-hitter intact. So it turned out not to be a team no-hitter, but that's where we are right now in early April baseball. It's a little chilly, maybe not in San Diego. But at the same time, it's hard. It's hard to complete a game, and let alone, it's, it's getting even harder, apparently, to throw a complete game no-hitter. So that's going to do it for this week's edition of Starkville. Sorry to have to go, but there's a lot more excitement happening. So coming up next on the Athletic Baseball Show is the Roundtable with Grant Brisby and Andy McCullough on Wednesday. And if you want to participate, by the way, and listen to trivia and try to stump us, because this happens a lot, although I feel like we started a dynasty last year. I don't know. We're getting broken up. I get it. You know, embarrassment of riches in getting these questions right. You can reach us by the typical methods of madness, by email, and of course on Twitter. On Twitter, I'm just at Doug Glanville, very boring, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. And Jason is you know, decided to throw a Y in there for some reason, J-A-Y-S-O-N. And then we go back to at J-A-Y-S-O-N and then throw the S-T. I guess that's for Stark. And he cut off the A-R-K. Why did he do that? I have no idea. So at Doug Glanville, at Jason S-T. And, or you can email us at our address, Starkville at theathletic.com. It's beautiful. By the way, The Athletic has some great writing. So let's check it out whenever you get a chance and what's happening all through the world of sports. Right now, you can save big time, just $1 per month for six months. Come on, that's six bucks. That was my number while I was playing. $6, that's it, and you're good to go. So visit visit theathletic.com forward slash, I don't know how they decide, is it leaning forward? I guess that's why it's forward, it's kind of weird. Forward slash baseball show, theathletic.com forward slash baseball show. And then I'll see you all next week. 